You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Bless you and lovely to see you and lovely to be part of this morning's service. Welcome back, Dave and Pip. Give them a round of applause, will you? It's so good to have them back. I also have my friend Baram here. Baram was here at this church in the 90s and uh, was converted here and married here. So would you welcome my friend Baram from Iran? I'm just looking at Robbie and Anna and seeing what family you have here, but I see Anna's mother. And, but anyway, welcome everybody. Glad to have you here, and especially those who brought family and relatives. And we have little baby Quinn here as well. So it's the time of year to bring extra people, isn't it? So... So we're in Psalm 89. be great if you could have that open in front of you. And I'm going to run all the way through it. We didn't have the whole of it read, but uh, we're going to sort of treat it quite quickly. It's a big psalm, Psalm 52, so got a little bit of a challenge to get through all of that. Yeah, Lord, just guide us as we study this scripture. And especially, Lord, for those who on this very day feel... Terribly let down. Help us to be faithful today, faithful in this experience, faithful in this moment. Help us to find you here today. Help us to support those who are in that state. Help us to bless and encourage and strengthen one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 150 Psalms, kind of a psalm for every occasion, really. That's the way it is with the Psalms. There's a psalm for the day when you feel joyful and full of praise. There's the psalm for, to mark important occasions. There's the psalm for the day when we just need to express our trust in God. There are the psalms which help us look at our world with eyes of faith. And yet other psalms for pilgrims traveling up to Jerusalem. Today's psalm, Psalm 89, is for the day when we feel overwhelmed with disappointment. Disappointment with God. And so I've called this message, What to Do When God Seems to Have Completely Let Us Down. It's no fun, is it, when people let you down? That's a terrible experience. Somebody makes a promise, gives you reason to expect something of them, and then they back away and let you down. You feel hurt, you feel foolish, you get confused. You know those days, an engagement is broken off, a wedding is cancelled, job is withdrawn and you get the sack. Moments of anguish, moments of terrible disappointment. None of those are as bad as the day when you feel that God has put you down. When God has made promises that he seems unable or unwilling to fulfill. And at that point, you just feel devastated. Well, what are we supposed to do then? What, what do people of faith do on that day? And that's what I'm asking today. What do we do when God seems to have completely let us down? I want to draw four things from this psalm, which I think will help us deal with a crisis just like that. And, and it is a crisis, isn't it? Not everybody experiences that. I don't think every believer has to go through this kind of valley And those who do may only experience it once or twice in the whole of their life. But when we do, if we do, that's a devastating moment. How wonderful then it is that 
Here in the scriptures, we have a warning that this might be part of our experience and also some guidance about what to do if and when it happens. I just need to say a few words about this psalm before we launch into it because this psalm is very unusual. In brief, this psalm is back to front. Um, There are many psalms in the book of Psalms which circle around the justice of God. We call them laments. And these laments have a standard form. They begin with a complaint and then there's a transition and then it ends with praise. Sort of two halves with a transition in the middle. Psalm 72, Psalm 22 or Psalm 73 are pretty classic examples. But Psalm 89 is the other way around. It begins with praise and it ends with complaint. So it's a psalm then of unresolved disappointment. And it's a twin because it's right jammed alongside Psalm 88. And Psalm 88 does something quite similar. It's a psalm of unrelieved suffering. So here we have two psalms together which address some of life's worst experiences. Unrelieved suffering and unresolved disappointment. So that's our cheerful subject matter for this morning. I'm sure you're with me in all of that. Um, look, at this point, I'm just going to lighten the tone just, just a little bit. My favorite cartoon is Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner. Is anybody with me on that? I love those cartoons. I laugh and I laugh and laugh. My daughter is like me. I, I really don't know why I am so find it so funny. Um, you know, the, there are two constants with the coyote. He always has a plan. He always has a plan. That's how every little episode begins. He's got a clever plan, and it always fails. It always comes to nothing. It's as if the whole universe is determined to undermine the plan. The, the episode that just catches it for me, and I love it the best, is that he found a road that led to a cliff. You know, the road just comes to a dead end and there's a cliff face. So he paints a tunnel on the cliff face. And the thought is, you know, I'll chase the roadrunner. He'll run up the street. He'll go straight into the cliff. Bang, and I've got him. Good plan. Clever plan. And so he chases the roadrunner and the roadrunner comes flying up to the cliff. And no sooner does he hit the cliff, then the the cliff becomes a tunnel. And the roadrunner runs into the tunnel. And of course, seeing that, the coyote's behind and he tries to run into the tunnel, by which time it's become a cliff again. And there he just smacks into the cliff. And just as he's raising himself, rousing himself, a truck comes out of the tunnel and hits him. <laughs> oh, isn't that great? And <laughs> yeah, well, you tell me why I find that funny. It's just so funny. And I guess it's because life is like that sometimes, isn't it? There are days where anything, everything that can go wrong does go wrong. And it feels like, you know, the laws of the universe are against us. And sometimes we can feel God is against us. So what are we supposed to do on that day? Well, here's the first thing we can do. We can remember God's greatness. I'm in verses 1 and 2. I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth, I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever. 
that you established your faithfulness in heaven itself. God's great, this great wonderful hymn of praise to God. God's great covenantal love and his faithfulness. Permanent attributes of God, they stand firm together, he says. And so the psalmist declares that he will sing of them forever. Pictures God in heaven in the company of all the spiritual beings. And in verses 5 to 6, this is what he sings. The heavens praise your wonders, O Lord. Your faithfulness too in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. Who can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord? Who is like you, Lord? And then in 10 to 13, he celebrates God's amazing power as creator. He defeats the chaos of the sea and the waters. He defeats the legendary sea monster Rahab in order to create the orderly world we know. And as a result, he says to the Lord, the heavens are yours and yours also the earth. And then in verse 14 to 18, he pictures God in procession, a kind of royal procession. Righteousness and justice are the things that are holding up his throne while love and faithfulness lead the way before him. And then he concludes 15, blessed are those who walk in the light of his presence. Blessed are those who can witness the procession of God and walk in the radiant light of that. It's a hymn of praise for our great God. Here's the first thing we can do when it seems like God has let us down. Remember his greatness. This is the story of the book of Job, isn't it? Book of Job where everything can go wrong, does go wrong for old Job. Loses everything, everything that's meaningful to him. And for 37 chapters, Job and his friends wrestle with the justice of God, or rather the seeming injustice of God. 37 chapters, and at the beginning of chapter 38, God speaks to Job, and to paraphrase, he says, well, you seem like a clever guy. You've got a lot of questions. Let me ask you a question. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And then we have four chapters in which God reveals his greatness. Kind of no answer to his disappointment, but what there is is a reminder, a revelation of God's greatness. And Job's response Chapter 42, verse 5, he humbles himself before God and he says, My ears heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. That's the answer of the book of Job for this problem. It's not an answer. It's not, well, the reason is A, B, C, and D. The answer is God is great. Just know that God is great. Here's something we can do when we feel that God has let us down. We can remember the greatness of God. You see, in our day and in our churches, our God is too small. It's not that God himself is too small, but our awareness of him is way too diminished. What that usually means is that something else in our life has puffed up to take its place. And in our day, for many of us, it's ourselves. So full of ourselves 
so absorbed with ourselves, we have simply no room for God as he actually is. Instead, we have a God who we believe exists to serve us with our interests. I remember once praying for a, with a woman and I said, no, why don't you pray in the middle of her anguish? And she said, loving God, you are there to help us. Can you see the ambiguity in that? Loving God, you are there to help us. That's kind of true, isn't it? But you need to say an awful lot more about God than that, don't you? God doesn't exist just to help us. God is God. And the beginning point in prayer is to acknowledge his greatness. And instead, if we shrink him down, it becomes a kind of a disease, a shrinking disease. And then that becomes a kind of madness, a madness in which the whole universe is flattened out. God himself flattened down so that I can be the highest point in the universe. And one of the symptoms of that madness is incessant grievance. Because if God is there for me and for my interests and I'm disappointed, then God is uh, a problem and I am aggrieved. It's a kind of disease. And is there a remedy for the disease? Yeah, there is. It's to remember God's greatness. We would do well to spend some time in verse 7 of Psalm 89 in the counsel of the Holy Ones. God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. Let me say something. Um, I, 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 was a, I was pastoring once and a youth pastor was making an announcement to our, all our young folk. And it was, uh, we're going to such and such a place. We're going to have dinner and the pizza is going to be awesome. So I took him aside afterwards and I said, Matt, if it's pizza, it's not awesome. And if it's awesome, it's not pizza. See how that flattens down, flattens the world down? So awesome is a word you can describe pizza with? Now, I know this marks me out as a middle-aged man, right? Like, you know, the man who hoses people off this front lawn, you know, and rants and shouts. You know, I know that marks me out as a sort of semantic pedant, pedant, you know, but, but my point is really serious. We need to leave room in our hearts for the breathtaking greatness of God. And on the day when you're aware of the breathtaking greatness of God, that's the day you need a word like awesome. Because the truth is, Lego movie notwithstanding, not everything is awesome. Not everything is awesome, but God is awesome. And if we don't reserve some of those ideas, then we lose them. So you need a word to say on the day when you know the greatness of God to go, God, you are more awesome than everything. You need a word for that, right? So having been a bit pedantic about that, we'll just move on there. What if you've actually come to believe, though, that although God is great, that he's using his power against you? What if the course of your life seems to show that not only is God not on your side, he's on the side of your enemies, and that he is actively seeking to harm you? What if the greatness of God is pitted against you? What do you do then? 
But here's the second thing we can do. And God seems to have completely let us down. We can remember his promises. And now I'm in verses 19 through 37. The second section of the psalm is just that, a meditation on the promises of God. This is what we can do. We can remember his promises. To be more precise, this psalm recalls the promises of God to David. And it recalls the prophetic ministry of Nathan who went once to the young David and prophesied to him about how David would become not only king, but that his kingdom would last forever. Here's what Nathan heard from the Lord as a prophet and declared to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me and your throne will be established forever. In other words, through Nathan, God promises David, your kingdom will last forever. Your dynasty will last forever. There will never be a day when there is not a descendant of David on the throne of Israel. And the writer of this psalm takes up that promise and meditates on it. And almost every line here is a promise. Just jump down with me from verse 19 down. Once you've spoken a vision to your faithful people, you said, I've bestowed strength on a warrior. I've exalted a young man from among the people. I found David, my servant. 21, my hand will sustain him. My arm will strengthen him. No enemy will subject him. No wicked man will oppress him. I will crush his foes. I will strike down his, strike down his adversaries. My love will be with him. I will set his hand over the sea. I will call out to me, your father. I will maintain my love to him. I will establish his line forever. And on and on it goes. Every line is a promise. Writer of the psalm reminding himself over and over and over again of God's promises to, to David. And this is another thing we can do when it seems as though God has completely let us down. We can remember his promises. He's another biblical illustration. It's that classic moment when Abraham, do you remember, was called by God to take his son to the top of the mountain and sacrifice him. God had promised, you remember, Abraham, that he would be the father of many nations, that he would, he would be the father of a great people. Many people would descend from him, but he only had one son, and that was Isaac. And God tells him, go to the mountaintop and sacrifice your son. How could the promise be fulfilled if Abraham kills his only son? And in that moment, everything Abraham had come to know about God was being contradicted by God. In that moment, Abraham trusted that God would find another way. God would find another way to fulfill his promise. And you know the story. Just at the last minute when he was about to sacrifice his son, God intervened and supplied a ram to be offered in the place of Isaac. And so Isaac was spared and the promises to Abraham were renewed. God trusting the promises, Abraham trusting the promises of God, even when it seemed that God himself had let him down. And we can do the same. You know, when we remember God's promises, well, what we're saying is that we trust him. It's to believe that in the model of life, the most stable thing, the most dependable thing is the word of God and the promises of God. It's to remember, as Peter tells us, uh, that'll be my mother, very likely. Just tell her I'm doing, doing fine. Thank you. I'll, be, I'll give her a call afterwards. 
You know, that lovely little section in Peter where it talks about how the whole universe was created by God's word and that moment by moment he upholds everything about us. The whole universe is held in place by the word of God, by the promises of God. And we can hold on to those promises in the middle of a terrible day and a terrible crisis of faith. And I'm, I'm so glad that not everyone experiences a crisis of faith like Abraham's or like this psalmist in Psalm 89. Of course, it's true, isn't it? We all experience disappointments and discouragements, but mercifully, few of us are pushed to the very limit of our faith and our endurance. But, but it is true that for some of us, some of the time, it seems that events demonstrate that God is kind of absent. God no longer in charge of our affairs. God seemingly no longer has our interests at heart. And I wonder if that's you today. I wonder if you are in that place. Well, here's something you can do. Hold on to the promises of God. Um, pastoral ministry is pretty darn tough. It's a tough gig being a pastor. And... Uh, I can remember walking up that street. I can nearly see, I can see down the street. I used to walk up every day to come up to church. Had four little kids. Uh, our days off were, you guys will know this, like remarkably disappointing. <laughs> I mean, happy days with kids and family and all of that stuff. But Sunday morning at 7 a.m., coming up that hill, walking up to church to preach twice, to minister to the Lord's people. Just feeling awful. Just feeling terrible. And thinking, oh, I got five more days of this. I, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. In tears coming up the street there. The scripture that helped me then was in, in 2 Timothy, where it says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. His Divine power has given me everything I need. Lord, even though I feel so bad and sad and struggling here, but Lord, your word says that you've given me everything I need for life. Everything I need for today, I have. Everything for life and godliness, God has already given. And I can trust that and walk on that, depend on that. I used to minister out of that. That was like me with zero dollars in the bank, you know, just depending on the promises of God. Like I just got this check that says, I'll give you what you need when you need it. I'll give you what you need when you need it. And, and, and God does. We can depend on him to do that. But what if you've come to believe that God is not fulfilling his promises? What if your life experience is that just at the moment you expect God to come good on his promises, he's absent? Because that's what this psalm is about. And that's why I think this psalm is back to front. Whoever wrote this psalm knows God and knows the ways of God. And they know that the thing to do in that situation is to remember God's greatness. And to remember his promises, they know that and they've done it brilliantly. But still, they're left with their problem. Where is God? What is God doing? Why doesn't God do something to help me? 
And that's why this is really such a dark psalm. This person is in such a dark place that the things which would normally comfort them are not working. They've remembered God's greatness and that didn't work. They remembered God's promises and that didn't work. So what's next for them? And what's next for us if we've reached that depth of desperation? What else can we do when God seems to have completely let us down? Here's two more things. And now I'm in verses 38 through 52. We can tell God the problem. Now, I probably should just underline at this point that whoever wrote this psalm seems to himself have been a descendant of David and therefore a candidate for kingship. We don't have any way of knowing precisely when this psalm was written or exactly who it is. What we can say is this this writer regarded himself as God's anointed one, verses 38 and 51, and as God's servant in 39 and 50, and that both his crown and his throne have been cast to the ground. He says that twice in 39 and 44. And so we get to verse 49 and he is complaining, O Lord, where is your former love which you swore to David? And the point I'm making here is just that. He complains. He tells God his problem. And he does it in no uncertain terms. Verse 46, how long, O Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how fleeting is my life. Do you get that? It's like, God, do something soon because my life is, I'm going to run out of life. Do something soon. For what futility you have created all men. What's the point? What man can live and not see death or save himself from the grave? Oh, Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, Lord, how your servant has been mocked and how I bear in my heart the taunts of all the nations, the taunts with which your enemies have mocked me, O Lord, and which they have mocked every step of your anointed one. The writer of this psalm is in such a deep place. It's as if God has left him entirely and he cries out, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? It's one of the saddest and most anguished prayers of the Bible. But that's what it is. It's a prayer. He tells God his problem. And that's why we have Psalm 89 in our Bible along with Psalm 88. We have this acknowledgement that there is at times in the experience of God's people the moment of unresolved disappointment. I wonder then if you've ever prayed a prayer like that. Look, I, I don't think I have personally. I've certainly been disappointed with God at times. And there have certainly been times in my life where I felt like I was following God's lead and doing God's will, but that At the critical moment where I needed God to turn up and do something, he seemed absent and distant. And I I know that I have prayed complaining prayers, but I've never been this low. I've never felt this horribly deserted by God. And maybe that's because unlike the writer of this psalm, I don't think of myself as a king. 
I don't see myself as a descendant of David. I don't think, therefore, I have a claim on God particularly. I see myself as a servant and my job is to do the will of my master as best as I can. And when I've done everything that has been commanded me, I'm, I'm, I'm entitled to say I am an unworthy servant. I've only done my duty. That's helped me to have low expectations. <laughs> Actually, that's not low expectations. That's, that's not making me the center. It's high expectation of being able to serve God in my life it's a sense of privilege, and I think that's really helped me not to go down into that hole. But maybe it's just that I've not experienced the same kind of disappointment as this psalmist. And if that's the case, well, thank you, Lord. I don't need to go into that place. May my whole life pass through, and I've never been in that valley. May it be true. I don't want to enter that place. And if I should, it's a comfort to know that even there in that dark place, the scriptures encourage me to bring my complaint about God to God. I hope you find that comforting. I hope you do. You see, even though the God of the Bible is a great God, he does not exercise his greatness in a way that crushes out our humanity or crushes out our experience as human beings. The God of the Bible is not a God of implacable will, of sheer force or power, imposing his will on creation. God of the Bible is a person, a loving person, heavenly father no less. And he knows how perplexing and distressing life can be for us. He knows and he cares. And we can bring our disappointments and grievances to him, knowing that he can hear them. Our God is great enough to hear our complaints, and still hold us safely in his hands. And then there's one more thing we can do when God seems to have completely let us down. We can look for Jesus where we are. This is a psalm all about God's absence. It's a heartfelt complaint about how God is not doing what God promised to do. The psalmist looks at his world and where he hopes to see God, what he sees are empty spaces. But we are Christians and we look onto this psalm as Christians and in view of what God has done in the world, in Jesus. And you don't have to look long in this psalm before you start to see that these empty spaces are filled with Jesus. Or put it another way, that this psalm is full of signposts pointing to Christ. This psalm longs for the coming of a great descendant of David, a great king descended from David, a great king whose kingdom will last forever, and we know the name of that king. His name is Jesus. And this psalm anticipates that that coming great king descended of David will call God his father and that he will be the Firstborn, and he will be the most exalted of the kings of the earth. And we know this Son of God, this Lord of Lords, his, his name is Jesus. And this psalm affirms that the coming king will be God's anointed one, his Messiah. And we know this Messiah, his name is Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah. And then thinking of the whole of this psalm, it embodies the experience of this king, 
descended from David, suffering, being rejected, even by God himself. And we know this suffering king. His name is Jesus. And that terrible cry in verse 46, how long, O Lord, how long, O Lord, has an answer. Israel was in exile so long, and yet even when they returned to the promised land, they remained under the thumb of foreign empress for many years, for centuries in fact. And even so, when the time was right, Jesus from Nazareth began to declare the kingdom of God is at hand. Kingdom established in his death and resurrection so that even now across the face of the earth, peoples of all nations honor Jesus, the king of kings. How long until the coming of Jesus? This psalm is about empty spaces, places where God seems to be absent. But it is also a psalm full of Jesus. If only the psalmist had eyes to see it and hear then is something that we can do when we feel that God has let us down. We can look for Jesus where we are. Look hard at those empty spaces and see Jesus there. In some Christian traditions, it's very common. In fact, most Christian traditions, it's common to have a cross Interesting, in this building, no cross, isn't it? That says something about this tradition. No cross. It's all ideas and thoughts. Uh, that's a Baptist kind of thing. So there's no cross here. And sometimes in the Protestant tradition, we are pretty. Uh, we, 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 we want to have a cross that's empty, right? An empty cross. And the reason for that is that we think we want a cross that demonstrates that the resurrection, that Jesus is no longer on the cross, and therefore, sometimes we get a little bit antsy about some of the other traditions that have a cross that has Jesus on the cross. Crucifix. Have you seen those? Cross with the Jesus hanging on the cross. And that's a shame that we feel a bit antsy about that because... That image of the suffering Jesus on the cross says something to human beings, doesn't it? The God who sends his son into the world as a sufferer. Jesus suffers. Jesus suffered. Jesus knows what it is to suffer. And that simple truth has been a source of enormous comfort and blessing to God's people down through the centuries. You know that African-American spiritual tradition, nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. Yeah. Are you distressed at the suffering in the world? Distressed about suffering in your own life? Jesus was a sufferer. And are you grieving the loss of someone very dear to you? Jesus was also bereaved and wept for the loss of his friend. Have you been betrayed? by those you love the most. Jesus also was betrayed by his closest friends. Have you felt deserted at the hour of your deepest need? Jesus also faced his worst hour on his own, deserted by family and by his dearest friends. But no matter how awful our circumstance Jesus is never far away. Look for him, and you'll find him, even in your darkest hour. 
So there's four things we can do when God seems to have let us down. We can remember his greatness. We can remember his promises. We can tell him the problem. And then we can look for Jesus. I call this message what to do when God seems to have completely let you down. And I said seems deliberately because the God of the Bible does not let his people down. And so I want to end where this psalm begins by affirming the faithfulness of our loving Heavenly Father. And in a moment, I want us to read together, if we can get it up on the screen, uh, verses 1 and 2, if we can. I'm going to read that in just a moment. Um, And I want you to recall the saddest, darkest day of your life, the, the coyote day, you know, when everything is set against you. And maybe today is that day for you. Maybe, maybe, you, maybe all you need to do is imagine that one day I might be in that place. Because, friends, there are days in the Christian life when there's nothing to do except to remind ourselves of the goodness and greatness of God. You remember Job said, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's faith, isn't it? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And one of the other Psalms, the psalmist says to God, let the bones you have broken rejoice. That's faith. That's faith in the darkest day. Faith in the darkest moment. So it's that kind of faith I want us to articulate together. And we're going to say together then verses 1 and 2. Have we got it? Yeah. Hang on. I I better open my one. I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever. That you established your faithfulness in heaven itself.